At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. You're listening to the Gospel Community Church Sermons Podcast, where we go through books of the Bible, verse by verse and line by line, to hear the truth that God's Word has to encourage, discipline, and bless us in our daily lives. Morning, y'all. How's everybody doing? Good to see y'all today. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Phil Danford. I am the worship director here at the church, and I'm an elder candidate, and I am so honored to open up God's holy inspired word with you this morning. Let's pray, and then we're going to dive in. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray for your presence this morning in this house. Lord, as we open up your text, God, I pray that, that you would you would be with us, God, that your, your word would pierce our hard and stubborn hearts, God, so that we could see the truth of your gospel. God, may we be turned to you. Or may, we, may we, we not tune out, God, but may we tune in and see what you have for us today, Lord. Lord, please overcome my deficiencies, overcome any lack that I have, God. And may I move out of the way, Lord, so that your word could be front and center and that you could be glorified. In your holy name, amen. Well, if you've been with us for any length of time, you've probably heard us refer to ourselves as a forever family, a forever family. This is one of my favorite things in our church lexicon, that we call ourselves a forever family. One, because if we're in Christ, we will be living with him and his people in a place called heaven forever. Uh, For all eternity, we will spend worshiping Jesus with our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we're an actual family, aren't we? We're an actual family. If we have been bought by the blood of Christ, we are brothers and sisters adopted together as children into the same family. And we, and we act like a biological family, don't we? We, we, we care for each other. We, we, we take care of each other. We, we have each other's backs. Let me tell you some of the awesome reasons it is to be a part of a, a, for, a forever family. One, we're not united by our shared interests, but we're united by our love for Christ. So, so let me tell you some of my interests. I like heavy metal music and riding motorcycles. How, how many people in here do you think like heavy metal music and riding motorcycles? We got one. I got one friend. Because we're not united under shared interest, we are united together as friends because of our love of Christ. Our interests aren't, don't define our friend group. We're drawn together for mutual love of Christ. Or how about this? In a forever family, you have people that are actually for you and your welfare. How many people have had fair weather friends? We've all had them, right? People that are only interested in you for what they can get out of you. And a forever family, you have people who are actually invested in you and care deeply for you and your welfare because they're empowered by the Spirit to do so. We can't do it on our own, but when we're in a forever family, we are empowered by the Spirit to care for each other authentically. Or how about this? In a forever family, you can finally take your mask off, right? You can be who you truly are. You don't have to pretend anymore. You don't have to pretend to have it all together. You don't have to act like your life isn't jacked up because all our lives are jacked up, right? The cross levels everybody. everybody. Everybody is the same. We are all desperate sinners in desperate need of the cross. It's amazing to be a part of a forever family. But, but, can I be honest If I can be real, it's also incredibly hard to be a part of this family. 
It's incredibly hard. It's not easy. If anybody tells you it's easy to be a part of a forever family, they're lying to you. We're all prideful, sinful people with sin natures and motivations that are not always pure. We all struggle to live and walk this Christian life. We all have hurts. We have all been offended, and we've offended others. We have all seen, said, heard, and done things that we know are out of step with the gospel. Let me prove it to you. Here's an example. How many people have served on a Saturday? Who here served on a Saturday? Yes. Yes, it's a beautiful thing. You've worked 40, 50 hours a week, and then you come in on a Saturday to serve your church. This shows where your treasure is, right? It's not in having downtime. It's not in your, your, your comfort, but you want to pour yourself out to serve the church. So you come in, you stack boxes, you move chairs, you run wires, you clean, whatever. You, you wear yourself out for the kingdom, and then you come in the next morning, and nobody says anything. That's okay. You don't, need a, you don't need a pat on the back. But then somebody else comes in that also served on a Saturday. And what do you hear? This person's amazing. They came in on a Saturday. Let's praise this person. Let's give them a trophy. And then you're standing there like, wait a minute. Am I, am I chopped liver? What do you, where's my trophy? Where's my pat on the back? It makes you less prone to want to come in on a Saturday. Or how about this? And I almost didn't bring it up because it's just so heinous. When someone comments on your parenting Oh, my Lord. Oh, Lord, help us. The offense is immeasurable. We won't be coming to the next cookout, that's for sure. Or, if we can get a little bit more serious, you know your story in this room, okay? You know what you've gone through. You know what you've done and what's been done to you. When I needed someone, no one was there for me. When I was at my lowest and darkest moment, when I was struggling with depression, no one reached out to me. When I lost a loved one, when I lost my job, no one checked on me. No one reached out to me. I was there for them too. I was there for them when I knew they were struggling. And when I'm suffering, where are you? You see, all of us, have an inner dialogue and a record of rights and wrongs. As much as we don't want to admit it, we are all carrying sins and hurts with us forever. As much as we act like those things don't affect us, we carry the offense with us. We all have father figure wounds. We have mommy-daughter wounds. Our spouses have hurt us. Church members have hurt us. Pastors have neglected us. They didn't reach out to us. Ministry heads didn't let us serve in the capacity that we wanted to. We felt called to a particular ministry, and then someone else got that job. People that you thought loved you said incredibly hurtful things. Am I right? Is it just me? We are all broken, hurt, offended, and offensive. We need help. We need help today. But there's good news, church family. Jesus is going to show us that we can live in a forever family. Jesus is going to break through our pride. He's going to break through our stubbornness and our hard hearts. And he's going to show us the beauty of the forever family that he established. And he's going to empower us to live this life. Which brings me to the main point of the text today. So if you don't remember anything else, if you fall asleep from here on out, remember this one thing. Life in a forever family is only possible when we know who we are. Life in a forever family is only possible when we know who we are. 
Okay, so here's our outline. This is, this is our outline through the text. First, we're going to look at when a forever family sins. Then we're going to look at when a forever family forgives. We're going to look at when a forever family has faith. Then we're going to see when a forever family sees who they truly are. So we have an opportunity here this morning. Y'all think God's done with Gospel Community Church? You think he's done changing us and growing us? No, he's not. We have an opportunity to build something radically different than the world. We can be an honest community where we can be vulnerable. We can examine our brother's lives and have our lives examined and it not be offensive and not be something that we run away from, but it can be life-giving and empowering because the gospel shines a light on who we truly are and Jesus empowers us to live in a forever family. All right, y'all ready to get started? Now let's open up in verse one. Okay, where we find ourselves in the text today is the very last lesson on a very long Sabbath day. So Jesus started preaching, if you remember back in 14, uh, chapter 14, and here we are three chapters later, this is the last lesson of that same day. So what did he tell us last week? Last week we, we studied about the rich man and Lazarus and their eternal resting place. And that was directed mainly towards the Pharisees, right? So here in our text today, he's going to turn to the disciples. Okay, now he's talking family business. He's turning to the disciples, and he's speaking to us here in 2023. Let's get cracking. All right, verse 1, and he said to the disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come. Let's stop there. Jesus is saying temptations or, or stumbling blocks in other translations, they are bound to come. As a matter of fact, you need to count on them. Don't be surprised when you're tempted to sin. This is, this is something that, to, be, to not get us too sidetracked, this is something that struck me this week. Isn't it awesome that Jesus offers us that? That he says temptations are going to come. It's not like it's a surprise. What's the lie that we all hear? I'm the only one that struggles with that. It's just me that struggles with that. It seems like they got their act together, but I'm over here still struggling with the same sin year after year after year. Jesus is saying, no, brother, you're going to be tempted to sin. And you know why I know? Because I've been tempted just like you are. He's a great high priest. He's saying, just because you're a new creation in Christ does not mean that fighting sin is over. On the contrary, the fight has just begun. He's warning us so that we'll be ready. Okay. Let's continue, verse 1. But woe to the one through whom they come. Woe to the one through whom the temptations come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Okay, so Jesus is prescribing a woe to, to anybody who would trip up other believers. So the woe is divine judgment or it's... it's just a, a, a warning of impending doom that is coming your way if you keep doing this. Do y'all remember when he was prescribing the woes in chapter 11? He was like, woe to you lawyers, woe to you Pharisees, woe to your brother, woe to your mama, woe to everybody. In the biblical context, the woe is the warning of what's coming. Say, heads up, the punishment, the consequence for this is severe. Open your eyes. All right, let's look at this millstone business. So, the millstone around the neck, this comes from the Greek word mulos, which is a great millstone. So not like a pocket millstone, we're talking about a great millstone. Um, this, is, this will be about four to five feet in diameter and about one foot thick, and it weighed about a thousand pounds. 
So this is a common execution practice for the Greeks and the Romans of the days. So they would tie the millstone around your neck and throw you into the sea. So no matter how good a swimmer you are, Michael Phelps isn't swimming away from this millstone. You're going down. Um, this makes you think of like a mafia threat, doesn't it? Like, like concrete shoes or maybe just me. Okay. Um, but interestingly, the woe or the consequence that Jesus is talking about, it's not the millstone. The millstone is the way out of the consequence. That's what he's saying. Meaning, if you were given the option for the punishment to take, you would pick the millstone all day long. If you knew what was coming for you, if you continue to, to lead others into sin, you'd be like, give me the millstone because the eternal consequence is so much greater. So what does he mean to lead the little ones to sin? So first, who are the little ones? Um, some commentaries say new believers or people that are weak in their faith. Um, and Jesus also refers, in, in the book of Luke, he refers to the church as the little flock. Either way, the, 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 the application is the same. If you lead anybody else to sin, the consequence is severe. So I would posit for us in 2023 in Gospel Community Church, there's two major categories where we fall into leading others to sin. One is legalism and liberalism. Legalism and liberalism. So when we put any other requirement on a Christian other than placing saving faith in Jesus Christ, we are adding to the gospel. It's adding to the gospel. So when we say, yes, you're saved by grace alone, hallelujah, amen, but you gotta believe like I believe. You gotta, you gotta have the same, same doctrines I believe you have to line up exactly with my theology. You have to listen to the preachers I like. You can't send your kids to public school. Are you kidding me? You're a Christian. You can't vote Democrat. You can't smoke, drink, or chew, or run with girls who do. What he's saying is, if you add anything to the gospel, you're leading others to sin. Y'all remember when Paul did this to Peter in Galatians 2? Let's look at it. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I, Cephas being Paul, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. I mean, Paul's, <laughs> Paul's hardcore. I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. And when he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. And when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Peter was saying, yes, the cross, but also live like this. Also add this to your, to your theology. Here's the problem with legalism. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus and nothing else equals everything. And when we add another requirement to the gospel, we rob it of its power and we lead people astray. Okay, how, what's, how else do we cause little ones to sin? What's the other side of the coin to legalism? Liberalism. So liberalism is I'm free to sin because I'm covered in the gospel. I'm free to sin because I've been forgiven on the cross. How many of us in this church are comfortable with inappropriate joking and pushing the line. I'm hey, but it's all right, it's a joke. <laughs> I'm free in the gospel. I can say whatever I want. 
Or how many of us are comfortable going to websites we know we shouldn't? Pushing that boundary, just pushing that boundary a little bit more. Or overindulging in alcohol. Or gossiping behind people's back, being judgmental of others in the church family. How many of us are comfortable with that because because we're free in, in the gospel? Let's look at Romans 6. Paul again. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. So so whether it's through legalism or liberalism, Jesus is saying, if you mislead a believer and preach to them anything but the gospel of grace, the punishment will be so severe that you wish you could opt for the millstone. Okay, So, so what Jesus has done, he's just outlined to us how seriously he takes sin. That was the point of all this text, to show us how seriously he takes sin and leading others to sin. But what he's going to do next, praise be to God, he's going to show us what to do when we inevitably sin. He's going to show us what to do when we do sin, okay? So the next point in our outline, when a forever family forgives. Okay, verse 3, pay attention to yourselves. In other translations, this would be, be on guard, or gird yourselves. In the family of God, it's inevitable that we will be sinned against and offended. It's baked into the cake, okay? We, we need to expect it. We are going to be sinned against. It shouldn't be a surprise. Oh my gosh, you sinned against me? Wow. No, this shouldn't be a surprise to us. We're going to be sinned against. So we need to be prepared on how we will respond. We need to, to beforehand be prepared on how we will respond when someone sins against us. And beyond that, it's impossible for us to respond rightly without the Holy Spirit. Okay, if you're taking notes, we need to guard against relational sins because we are so prone towards them. We need to guard against relational sins because we are so prone toward them. We're walking through a minefield, aren't we? The things we say, the tone in the things that we say, or the things that we don't say are potentially offensive and offending. How in the world are we supposed to operate in this family when we're walking through a minefield that we're constantly sinning against each other? Well, Jesus gives us the recipe. Let's look at it. Verse 3. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So Jesus offers the recipe for dealing with sin in the family of God, and it's practical, isn't it? It's not this big, complicated steps and paths we have to It's a practical, cut-and-dry recipe. And it's unbelievably humbling, isn't it? Here it is. Here it is. This is what he said, broken down. Rebuke, repent, forgive, repeat. That's what, that's what Jesus offers us. Rebuke repent, forgive, repeat. This is the recipe the Lord offers us to continue to be in a forever family, even when we're constantly offending and being offended. Doesn't that seem simple? This seems to be like a WWJD bracelet. But we're all smart cookies in here, right? We know it ain't that simple. It ain't that simple. Let's do a poll. Who here likes being rebuked? Okay, who here likes doing the rebuking? Okay, if you did say you like doing the rebuking, maybe you shouldn't be doing the rebuking. Take a seat, take a breath. 
When you rebuke someone, you are, one, affirming that there's a biblical standard that must be met. There's a biblical standard that is, that is objective, must be met, and you didn't meet it. And then two, you're opening yourself up for all your junk to be on display. So when I say, hey, brother, I think you're in sin, he says, hey, brother, I think you're in sin. Let's talk about your stuff. It's much easier to just ignore sin and let it slide, isn't it? It's much easier to avoid all accountability and just become bitter. If you're taking notes, the goal of the loving rebuke is that they would repent and come back to Christ. That's the goal, okay? It's not to prove our self-righteousness. It's not to to prove our superiority. We're not super Christian. It isn't even that someone would feel bad about what they did. That's not why we rebuke, so that someone would feel bad. No, the goal is that they would come back to Christ, that they would stop being blinded by their sin and his eyes would be opened again to the truth that he knows. That's what it is. Brother, you're being blind. I know you don't want to do that. I know you don't. I know you. You don't want to go that way. Brother, open your eyes to the truth again. And what's the response to a rebuke? True repentance. True true repentance is the only way that we can make amends. So true repentance occurs when someone fully understands what they've done, that they've sinned against their brother and ultimately God, and they are appalled by their sin. They turn away from their sin. They understand the depth of what they've done, and they don't make any justifications or excuses. So we can, we can all excuse away our sin, right? We can say, I only did that because so-and-so did whatever. I was having a hard day. That's the only reason I yelled like that. Whatever. True repentance comes when you make no justification, no excuses. Let's look what, what David did in Psalm 51. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. I would say David sinned against Bathsheba too, right? But no, in his repentance, he says, against you and you only have I sinned. Ultimately, I've sinned against God. There is no healing and there's no reconciliation without a contrite heart that is seeking forgiveness and turning from your ways. So what's our response to true repentance? The response to repentance is forgiveness. There's forgiveness. So the cycle is not complete until you forgive and restore. The old way the world operated was, if you sinned against me, I will get you back. I will get my recompense. If you sin against me, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. Here's forgiveness. Here's the new way we're going to operate in the family of God. R.C. Sproul said, forgiveness means that you hold a sin against someone no more. That's what forgiveness is. We have to extend grace. We have to extend patience. We have to give the benefit of the doubt. Here in this room, we know each other. I know, I've walked life with you guys. Y'all have walked life with me. I say, I know you. I know this isn't what, like you. I know this isn't who you are. I can forgive you. One thing important to note, this doesn't mean that we turn a blind eye to abuse. We don't turn a, a blind eye to manipulation. Forgiveness doesn't mean putting ourselves in harm's way, Right? We must be discerning and examine if the person is truly repentant. 
So it's not naive forgiveness. We're not just naively forgiven. Anybody that says, I'm sorry, we're walking into it with our eyes wide open. We know that we're walking out a picture of the gospel and forgiveness. When I extend forgiveness, we are walking out a picture of the gospel. So what Jesus is saying is this. When you rebuke in love, repent in humility, and forgive because you have been forgiven. This is our recipe in the new covenant and the new family of God. And what's the upper limit on this? How much forgiving should we do? When does the grace and patience run out for a brother that just keeps sinning over and over and over? He just sinned sinning against me over and over and over. This is what Jesus says in the text. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. This is hard, right? Matter of fact, conventional wisdom says it's ill-advised to keep forgiving somebody that just keeps doing the same thing over and over, right? What's the old saying? Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Jesus is essentially saying, if this person sins against you perpetually and they have a heart that's genuinely repentant and they work to make amends with you, you are obligated to forgive them. Hmm. Okay, so what Jesus has done is he's outlined the new recipe for forgiveness. And what we're about to see next is the disciples are saying, this is hard. They're aware of just how lacking they are. They're aware of how incapable they are of forgiving like this. So they do like any sensible people would do. They blame it on Jesus instead of themselves. All right, next point in our outline, let's look at when a forever family has faith. All right, verse five. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Faith. They're trying to, we can't carry out this picture of radical forgiveness like that. You need to increase our faith. They're trying, to, they're, they're trying to claim that there's a higher tier of spirituality, okay? That they're, on, they're like Christian 1.0 and they need to update to Christian 2.0. They're saying there's more that Jesus hasn't given them yet. And of course, Jesus shuts that down. All right, let's look in verse six. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. So the stark contrast he's trying to make is if you had faith like this, a speck that we can hardly see, it would have unbelievable power. Let's not remove it. The root system was just so established and so interconnected, you couldn't remove it. Jesus is revealing the power of their faith when it was placed on him has infinite potency. If you're taking notes, it's not the quantity of faith that matters, it's the object of the faith that gives it its potency. It's not the quantity of the faith that matters. It's the object of the faith that gives it its potency. We got time for a story? Here we got time. Okay. Me and my wife, one year, were, we went to Panama City Beach, Redneck Riviera. Um, we, were walking, <laughs> we were walking down the street, and we saw a hot sauce store. So like a moth to a flame, I couldn't stay out of this hot sauce store. And lo and behold, in the center of the hot sauce store was a kiosk with a hot sauce bottle shaped like a grenade. I had to see this grenade bottle. And lucky day, they were giving samples of this hot sauce. So I grabbed the grenade bottle and liberally put it on a chip. And I take a bite. And I say, it's not that hot, okay? 
And then the lady behind the counter says, oh yeah, we use one drop of that to spice an entire pot of chili. And then I realized it at that moment as I'm crying and I'm drooling and I'm over here in the cooler just chugging these $5 bottles of Dasani saying, yeah, you're right, it is pretty hot. And my wife's over in the corner acting like she doesn't know me. <laughs> just like the hot sauce, Jesus is saying, when I am the object of your faith, the potency is infinite. The potency is infinite no matter how small the quantity. Okay, so at first, at first glance, the apostles' request doesn't seem evil, does it? They're saying, increase our faith, Jesus. Think, think of how much they can do for the kingdom, all the cool stuff they can do if they had just awesome faith. The problem is their request for more faith is rooted in a request to elevate themselves instead of elevating God. Have you ever heard of a Christian leader described as a great man of faith? Yeah, we all have. But who gets the glory in that statement? The man, not God. Jesus is saying, asking for more faith is already barking up the wrong tree, and you're looking in the wrong direction. Instead of in trying to increase your faith, you should be humbling yourself and viewing your station rightly. Okay, so what Jesus is about to reveal to them is this. Their difficulty in forgiveness is not because of their lack of faith. It's because they have an incorrect view of themselves. All right, here we go. The last, the last point in our outline is about to get good, y'all. When a forever family sees who they truly are. Okay, so let's start in verse 7. Will any one of you who has a servant... Okay, Servants here referring to bond servants, okay? We're not talking about chattel slavery, which is where people were forced to work against their will. And we're not talking about a house servant, so it's not like a butler or Jeeves or something like that. They get, they get uh, um, compensation. They get compensation or room and board or something like that. A bond servant had a debt that he could not repay. There was no way he could repay this debt. And then a benefactor offered to pay the debt for him in exchange for his labor. And then they agreed on the time, if you work for me for this many years, do whatever the master says, right? And the bondservant had one job, one job only, do whatever the master says, right? That's his job. Okay, let's continue. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table, will he rather not say to him, Prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterwards you will eat and drink. Does he thank the, bond, the servant because he did what was commanded? So again, if you understand the arrangement between the bond servant and the master, his job was to obey. He should never expect to come in from a hard day's work and have a meal waiting for him. That's not, that's not what they agreed to. They agreed to, I serve you until my debt is paid. You did your part paying my debt. Now I serve you even after a hot day, I'm supposed to have a meal ready for you. Okay, and then verse 10, so you also, talking to the disciples specifically, so you also only done, you have done all that you're commanded say, we are unworthy servants and we have only done what is our duty. Okay, and that's the end of our text. So like many of Jesus' parables, it seems like this comes out of left field, right? Like we were just talking about forgiveness how can we forgive? And he says, yeah, let me tell you about these servants. Seems like an odd answer to their question. But praise be to God. 
in the power of his word, when the spirit illuminates the text, it shows us something so much deeper. There's something so much richer in here for us. Okay, so let's, let's recap. So the apostles, they hear the new command for forgiveness and they say, we can't do that, Jesus. Give us more faith. And Jesus says, you don't need faith. And then he responds to them with a parable of the bondservant and the master. What's he doing? Jesus is revealing that the issue is in their hearts and our hearts. You see, we find it difficult to forgive because we don't view ourselves as the bondservant, but the master. We find it difficult to forgive because we're viewing ourselves as the master. So if I'm the master and I'm sinned against, the offense is huge. That person must pay penance. They must flog themselves. I demand satisfaction. I'm the master. However, if we could see ourselves for who we truly are, who we really are, we'd see we're the bondservant. We're the bondservant working off a debt we would never be able to repay. We're the bondservant who's got nowhere else to go. I've got nowhere else to go. You see my history of sin? Who else is going to take me? I've got nowhere else to go. We're the bondservant who would spend the rest of our lives paying back what we owe, and it still wouldn't be enough. We could work for all eternity trying to pay back our debt and guilt, and it would never be enough. But instead of this doomed life of slavery, what happened? What happened instead? Instead of this life of trying to earn our our way in, what happened instead? Instead of us working for all eternity in vain to pay the master back, the master himself became the servant for us. The master himself became the servant for us. He paid the debt we would never be able to pay. The master himself threw down his right and his privilege and he humbled himself. He took on his back our iniquity and he despised the shame and bore in blood our guilt and paid our debt in full. Our balance stands zero now. And even more than that, as if there could be more than that, as if there could be any more than that, he paid our debt, he took the punishment we deserve, and yet he gives us more. He sets a banquet before us. He welcomes us in, not as servants, not as lackeys, but as friends. He welcomes us, he sets the table and welcomes us in as friends. What Jesus is saying is, you cannot forgive because you've forgotten who you are. You're the debtor. You're the bondservant. If you're taking notes, when you begin to see how much debt you owed and how great the degree that you've been forgiven, you can forgive freely because the power of the gospel makes us view ourselves rightly. So that's our text. A couple points of application. So how can we survive in this forever family when we are constantly sinning against each other and we're constantly being sinned against. So it's just like what what Jesus outlined in the text earlier. Rebuke, repent, forgive, repeat. Jesus gives us the answer. Rebuke, repent, forgive, repeat. Let's look at each of these. Okay, rebuke. Let me ask you, consider this with me. When you see your brother in sin, how quick are you to say something because you love him so much? Who's that person that you let their sin go on for far too long and you knew you should have said something? I know mine. 
It's 15 years. I knew I should have said something. I didn't. Rebuking your brother and sister when they're in sin is not easy at all. It's hard. That's why we avoid it like the plague. But what we're forgetting is we're not doing it in our own power. We're doing it because Christ is empowering us to rebuke in love. And he's going to get the results. Our words aren't going to get the results. Our words aren't going to bring somebody to repentance. He's going to bring. All we need to do is be faithful. That he will use our stumbling, awkward, weird conversations. And he's going to use that to bring someone back to the cross. We need to walk out biblical rebuking because we love our brother and sister too much to let it go. Okay? Next, let's look at repent. When's the last time that you were radically open in your DNA? When's the last time you held nothing back? We've all got that one thing that I ain't telling anybody about. I'll tell you about this, but I'm not telling you about that. There's no room for tough guys at the foot of the cross. The gospel illuminates that. We are all bond servants, so quit trying to act like you got your life together because we know you don't. I don't either. Share where you've sinned and been sinned against so that we can be reconciled and Christ can be glorified. All right, next, forgive. Forgive. So if you examine your heart, what sin are you still holding on to? What thing did that person say on that street anymore that you haven't let go of? I don't go down that street anymore because he lives there. I can't listen to this song anymore because it reminds me of her. What are you still carrying on to, holding on to? C.S. Lewis said, forgiveness is a beautiful idea until we have to practice it. It's difficult. It's difficult. We all have hurts that we are still carrying with us. But praise be to God, he's empowering us to walk out biblical forgiveness. We have to extend grace. We have to extend patience. And we have to give the benefit of the doubt to our brothers and sisters. And last, repeat. This means that we'll be repeating this cycle over and over and over again on this side of glory. As long as we're still in the flesh, we're going to be sinning and we're going to be sinned against. It's going to happen. So we repeat this cycle over and over and over again. And we remind ourselves daily that we're the bond servant. We're not the master. So I can forgive because I've been forgiven so much. So let's continue to rebuke, repent, forgive, repeat. Because Jesus is empowering us to live in this forever family. And when we understand our station in light of the gospel, we can forgive freely and God can be glorified. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for these challenging texts, God, that, that open us wide open, God, and examine our hearts. Lord, thank you that you know our condition. You know what life is going to be like here on earth, God. So you give us a way out. You give us a means to be able to get healing, God. 
Lord, I pray that we would be a radically open and a radically forgiving people in Gospel Community Church, God, so that you can be glorified and that more people can be drawn to saving faith in you. We love you, Lord. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. Feel free to share the contents of this podcast, but please do not alter it in any way without permission. Please like, follow, and subscribe to us on Facebook or iTunes. Visit gospelcc.com for more content like this. At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. Thanks again and have a blessed day.